Human Vortex Training and Menachem Brody present the Strong Savvy Cyclist and Triathlete Podcast, where we talk strength training, physiology, psychology, tech, and much more to help you get fitter, faster, and stronger in and out of your sport, giving you expert insights, talking with other leading experts. And now, your host, world-leading strength coach for cyclists and triathletes, Menachem Brody. Welcome to the Strong Savvy Cyclist and Triathlete Podcast. Today, I'm very excited to be joined by a coach I've been following for many years, and actually, the model in one of his courses is my strength training coach. Lee Taft is here. He is known as the Speed Guy. He has been helping athletes get faster, fitter, and stronger for quite some time. He has a course, which is the Certified Speed and Agility course on the NSPA. He also has the Athletes Acceleration Sports Performance Training. And most recently, and if you are looking for a CEU course or a course just to get better at speed and agility coaching, I strongly recommend taking advantage of his Speed Insiders six-month course. It is very in-depth. And today, you guys are going to get a little bit of a peek inside the head of one of the, the if not the top speed guy in the world today. Lee Taft, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, I'm so excited. This was really, uh, really cool for me. I'm glad you invited me to, uh, to be able to share some thoughts with you today. It's, this should be a lot of fun. Yeah, and, and it's going to be uh, a deep dive of sorts, I have a feeling, uh, just having been through uh, your course and, and watching your stuff on LinkedIn. Uh, and I'd like to thank you. We had a little bit of a back and forth on LinkedIn where I mentioned, hey, you know, I have this set up for lights. And you're like, ah, I want people to just get started and realize they don't need that much equipment. So here I am podcasting. So thank you for the, the kick, <laughs> kick over the hedge. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny. We, uh, it's funny because I was talking to my wife the other day because we have we have lights and we have them in storage. And then my, my oldest daughter is very big in the social media and she does all the, she has more advanced lighting and all that stuff. And also we have all that stuff, but I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to keep it basic, keep it simple. Cause I get people asking me all the time. Well, I don't know how to do it. I said, look, at set your phone up, push play and go. And then you'll be amazed at how momentum will start from there. Then you can figure the other stuff out later. And we had a little bit of that at the beginning here. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, nobody has more issues with stuff like this than I do. I swear. Every time I get on, I actually did another interview this morning and one yesterday. And, all, and both of them were had a glitch in them. So I'm like, it's no surprise anymore. <laughs> well, uh, well, it's uh, one of the things that's fantastic about technology. And I think we all kind of forget, uh, you know, we think about a decade ago, it was so hard, you know, FaceTime came out and everybody's, oh, I can talk to people around the world. And now it's like, oh, you have 80 or 90 different apps to choose from. Um, but getting started is the hardest part and no pun intended or pun completely intended. Um, that's kind of what I'd like to, to have you talk about today is uh, specifically runners and triathletes. Uh, a lot of the ones I've been coaching over the last uh, 11 years are very surprised when they see some speed and agility work in there. You know, they expect sure. some track work, but agility, well, I don't need agility. I'm a, I'm a triathlete. I'm a runner. Um, what are your thoughts on speed and agility for, for these athletes? You know, what, what importance do, does it serve them and, and why has it gone uh, untapped for so long? You know, that's, a, that's just a really, really good question because you are so right. Most, especially long-time coaches, are not at all comfortable or have a, have a base of understanding of the value of training the human system 
to have variability. And variability just gives us greater potential, greater options. So when I was a head track coach and also I was a, a cross country coach, but I also, you know, trained other athletes, you know, I trained athletes of all team sports and field sports. And, and the one thing that I always tried to do with my linear athletes, my track and my cross country, my distance runners, my, you know, whether it's a, a 5k, a 10k, a marathon or whatever, triathlete is uh, multi-planar movements or multi-directional um, movements if even if we just did them in one direction so we didn't even include change of direction yet which we will we'll we'll mention that but if we even did that we are giving the structure the system um, more capacity more capacity to to be able to joint load and to be able to handle uh, force absorption and force production so and we, if we look at like the feet, for example, that's, you know, that's mm -hmm. the critical component. That's what touches the ground and that's what gives us sensory feedback. And we have all these joints, you know, whether we're talking from the toes or as we move up the foot into the ankle and the, and the, the you know, the lower leg and how we go internal, external rotation and pronation, supination and mid-tarsal joint movement. Mm -hmm. We've got all these patterns. So if we can train those movements to strengthen those patterns, to strengthen our feet and strengthen our ankle and our lower leg, it just makes us a more efficient mover in a linear pattern like a distance run or a, um, you know, or a straight ahead run. Um, and then, then if, we, if we include like the agility, uh, change of direction, deceleration training, now all we've added is we've added the element of strengthening uh, tissues, strengthening the the system to be able to manage mass and momentum so if we're like a triathlete which there is the potential for variability and quick change of directions based on something happening in front of us especially at the beginning of a race mm -hmm. uh, where there's a pack um, cross country is run through trails and un unforgiven uh, terrain sometimes the ability to be able to change our pace or our momentum gets built up through basic agility training real simple stuff doesn't have to be fancy and so i think there's so much value in it that we just don't tap into yet but hopefully we do because i think it'll make a better a better uh, distance runner if we were to use that phrase and you mentioned some things really interesting there that I, uh, it goes over the head actually or under the feet i should say of most people uh, the <laughs> joints of the feet and ankles there's so much that goes on there you know, people are familiar with the plantar fascia, but they don't think about the, you know, uh, the, the big toe, the impact that has being able to spread the toes, um, be able to lift the big toe uh, on its own, and how the, the subtalar joint and the calcaneal joint make up the ankle and how much pressure and force those are taking when things are out of alignment. Um, it's just incredible to think that someone's trying to uh, swim, bike and run with the run being the last and they're just not taking the time to learn how to deal with the forces at the most basic contact point. Is there anything that you found has been a, a real selling point that you can get buy-in from the athlete that, hey, actually this is important and I should be spending some time instead of a, a long run or a long ride doing this? Yeah, for sure. For Number one, we try to explain to them, is it rare that you get to run on completely flat surface, especially if you're a triathlete. Now, if you're a if you're a, you know, a track athlete and you're running only on the track surface, okay, well then, you know, you're going to, you're going to get a pretty, uh, uh, you know, compatible 
surface to you know being flat you're not going to have to worry about uh, different terrains but that still doesn't excuse the fact that there's there's great support in making sure we have multi-planar movements so one of the things that we want to understand when we train uh triathletes uh, you know, just, you know, it's you know, just regular distance runners or, or like I said, triathletes that have more to deal with than most distance runners is the more that we get the feet involved. Now we got this nice spring mechanism and we can become so much more efficient and economical as we run. And if we are doing strength training for any other part of the body or hips or core or, you know, our legs or whatever it is, you know, we, we don't question training multiplanar. You know, we don't, you know, question maybe doing a side squat or a side lunge or, a, you know, a multi-directional type lunge or movement or pressing from different patterns. But with our feet, we got to understand the more we can get our athletes to move in the frontal plane and certainly the transverse plane, obviously sagittal, just the more forgiving and resilient and the greater stiffness we get in all those potential directions, especially the transverse, because we're really transverse animals. That's really what we are. We have to always control the transverse plane, especially with all the bones and joints and the ankle and the feet. Mm-hmm. And um, so, yeah, I, I just think that's so important that we, that we address that with our athletes to get them to buy in and then to be able to say, well, if I can protect you from hitting a bad piece of pavement or a, you know, a a little hole that kind of is below the grass that you don't see. So we can protect you from that. Not only can you still keep performing really well, but we might avoid you from, you know, ending your season with a bad injury. So, so I think usually they'll buy in if I can get them to understand that part of it. Is there a specific, um, exercise you try and get to help them see wow this is really difficult or this is important you know uh, jumping rope is a basic one that comes to mind and and teaching them like videotaping them and showing them from the side look how you're dissipating the forces and we can make you much more efficient uh is is there anything like that yes so jumping rope for sure um i do these little low box exercises that you know anywhere from two inches or it could be like a weight plate like a 45 pound weight plate you know the the width of something like that so it's not very big and we'll just have them you know facing it jump on and jump off multiple times so it's very similar to jump roping it's just that i'm jumping on this little lift and then back off and i can videotape them from the back from the side and from the front and even from angles and we can show them how their body's managing this weight and the reason i like using something like a low box or whatever is because i can get a little bit of a projection forward which running is we're projecting our body forward so i can show them the loading in from a from a uh, coming out of a dorsiflex position we don't always land in a complete dorsiflexion we we eventually get there but we come out of uh, that that dorsiflex position so they get to see how their calcaneus and everything is managing that movement. And then if I show them from the side, you know, if they do it sideways, you know, if they actually jump on and off sideways, they get to feel how they don't quite have the range and the stability that most athletes that do multidirectional speed do have. And sometimes that's the saving grace for them. That's what protects them. Mm-hmm. And that injury prevention is is so huge, especially when you're talking about uh, putting in big mileage, as a lot of triathletes like to do. 
Um, you mentioned you had coached uh, track and field before, uh, cross country. Um, what were some of the distances that you saw uh, helped athletes? Like, let's say you had a miler that needed to get uh, a little bit more speed, or let's say you had a, a steeplechaser who needed a little bit more speed. Did you have any, and, and obviously it, it depends, we, we know that, the athlete, but there's kind of like a, a general trajectory of, hey, let's go back to this distance or this drill to help you pick up uh, the proper gait and the proper um, rhythm that you need to maintain your speed over that given distance. Yeah, yeah. So we would do, so the, the, the one thing that I always preach to my athletes when I coach track and field and cross country, I always made sure they understood the person that runs the, is capable of running the furthest does not win necessarily. It's the person who runs the fastest for the distance we've set. Okay. So 3.1, whatever it is, five, you know, whatever the distance is, you at some point, you've got to have some speed if you're going to win. You could go out and run miles all day, but if there's no uh, cadence and speed to it, then you're probably not going to be real successful. You have to have some speed. So what I like to do, so you had mentioned a miler, so we use that as an example. So I want to make sure they have the ability to have the endurance and the capacity to maintain at a distance speed uh, uh um, uh, what was the word I'm trying to think of, but like a capacity to be able to hold their speed, so a speed endurance ability. So we might go like at 600 and 800, and we're going to do repeats of those. Then what I would do, I would drop, and this, this would be successive sessions sometimes, and I figured this out over time of doing it, is I would go to like have them do 60s, 80s and 100s mm -hmm. now i'm getting their speed at a much higher level mm -hmm. then i would jump back up to their mile and we would do repeat miles and then we would go right back through that sequence again so what was happening is the athletes never got too far away from turning their legs over faster but we always stayed around being able to build the capacity to run that mile with still having energy uh, reserves. And that was the value of doing the repeats, you know, and the interval, interval type training stuff that allowed them to build the capacity. But by doing it almost, it's kind of like a wave loading. I didn't, you know, I, I could make it more wave loading, but it was kind of like a, you know, like a, uh, you know, you know, go from, from the, your, your race pace, then let's drop down a little bit below that. And now let's go ahead and get a higher speed and then let's drop way down into like a 60, 80 or 100. And now let's turn over and then we'll jump right back. And so we always gave them that ability to feel speed while they were still at their race distance. So that's, that's something that's really interesting is using the shorter distances. And it seems very prevalent in the track and field community to use distances. So 400s, 200s, 100s. What about using time for a desired uh, metabolic energy system, like uh, three, five, or eight minutes for VO2 max and seeing if the athlete can pace themselves properly. Is that something you ever dabbled with or you would see uh, value in? Yeah. Yep. Matter of fact, I probably did that more, to be honest with you. You know, I would, so I would say, you know, we would be in the, you know, 2.30, minute, 3.30, you know, five minutes or whatever it is, we would hit those times. Uh, and, and so the athlete, if, you know, typically I try, especially high school kids don't always do it, but I tried to get them to have a watch, mm -hmm. you know, and this was back before all the GPS and all that stuff come out. But I just tried to get them have a watch 
so that you're with me. I've got you on my watch. I've got your time and I've got everything, but I want you to be able to see where you're at as well. Because if I'm not in voice range, you need to be able to know where you're at and how much you have to be able to push. So yes, I think, I think that is really good because then I know I can hit chemical, you know, um, capacities and break down things of that level. So if I want to get them to learn to buffer, I have to hit certain uh, time, uh, you know, thresholds. So what are your thoughts on, on why the distances are, are so prevalent? Is it because it's easier for us as coaches going to the track? You, know, you don't have to worry about carrying, carrying a whistle or like you said, the athlete forgets their watch, especially back in the early days. Like if you were lucky if they had a Casio that didn't die after three months from their sweat, uh, you know, it, it, what is it? Is it, or is it just dogma? Like, you know, like stretching your hamstrings before a marathon. Why are you doing it? Because uh, everybody else is doing it. it you know, what right. is it about the distances? Is it because the events are distances, so we just our, our brain automatically goes there, or is it just nobody's really pushed to change and focus more on the energy systems based off of uh, where those sliding switches kind of take over one another? Yeah, I, I think that's it, really. I think it's because, you know, having been a track athlete myself and then coached it, you know, for many years and now trained many athletes in it, I just think that's the first thing because. Most athletes, if, if I were to say to a, a, a new athlete that, that was familiar with track but had no basis of understanding times in track, I could say to them, I could say to them, hey, we're going to run a 400. They can look and say, okay, I'm going to go one time around this track. But if I were to say to them, hey, I want you to go run for, if it's a beginning athlete, you know, I might, you know, let's say a boy, and I said, hey, we're going to go run for 65 seconds. You know, that's fairly low level for a younger boy. But that's, you know, if I said 65 seconds, they're like, well, how far is that? Where am I going? And, and in my mind, well, that's one lap for you, most likely. Mm -hmm. So I think that's what it is. I think it's an easy way. And actually, the best thing is to use both. Mm -hmm. If you were to say, hey, we're going to run roughly a 400 or a 600 and and but this is what we're looking for time wise we want to we're shooting for the time more than the distance but this is what we're looking for so i think you're right i think it's just that's what we've always grown up around and um, um of course not having like triathlons way back mm -hmm. and that wasn't as common so you know and that's more of you know we're, we're shooting for time you know so yeah definitely and, and there's a lot to that. Uh, I've kind of really gone that way with triathletes more and more. Uh, and even some of the basketball players I work with, like I, I really, I, I think they enjoy the challenge of trying to figure out, well, your coach wants me to run for 35 seconds. What the heck is 35 seconds? Uh, so it kind of allows them to figure out and, and change the game. So uh, I was talking with a client this morning and he mentioned um, he was at IMG in Arizona and they had created a tennis court without any lines because uh, someone, one of the top players in the world, when she was practicing, she wouldn't continue if she estimated the ball would go out. So they wanted her to continue uh, for the speed and agility side of things. Uh, so they erased the lines. They just made a court with no lines. Oh, um, that's cool. So kind of trying to think the same thing with triathletes. Uh, what do you think are, are the important things that a triathlete needs to think about changing, you know, track and field is great and we're kind of doing track and field, but we're kind of also doing some marathon style training. What are some things that in your perspective, a triathlete should be prioritizing towards the top that they're probably not? Oh, if, if we're, would you, could, 
I don't know if you want to go down the strength route, but certainly, certainly the strength portion of it, just because of rate of force development and to be able to get off that ground quicker, that's one thing. But if we were to not go that route, um, the, the areas that I think, and this is where I impacted, you know, my, my endurance athletes the most is sprint training and pure plyometric training. I, I think the ability to develop that resiliency, that elastic and the stiffness quality, when you explain to them, you have roughly this many steps. And if each step matters more, and if we even gain, you know, inches per step over that distance of a time matters tremendously. So I think teaching them how to become, um, you know, more create that stiffness and that elastic quality to get off the ground, which is done through, we can do that through sprint, which is a form of low level plyometrics. Mm -hmm. And then obviously pure, you know, a plyometric training where we're working on maybe a depth landing and then a depth jump or, or repeat jumps of that nature. When I implemented a system for my, my athletes and we progressed it over years, that's when we went from, you know, having, you know, not very many successful athletes to have in, you know, state champions and things of that nature. It's just because now they became, and of course it was with proper training, uh, you know, endurance training and proper strength training, but that really was one of the things that made a difference. So I think triathletes with all that they have to do, um, you know, being able to have that, that tissue quality, be able to get stiff and create elastic energy. I think that just adds such a bonus to their, you know, to their uh, events. Yeah. And, and it's so important that we start with that base of strength, as you mentioned, like that's, that was the first thing you said was, well, if we're not going to go down the strength route, because a lot of triathletes and I think cyclists are worse with the plyometrics or what they think are plyometrics, uh, honestly, but uh, with triathletes, they don't seem to, to understand as well as we'd like them to that in order for you to be able to be fast and to be able to handle the sprints and the plyometric, we need to, number one, joint position dictates muscle function. So we need to get you in a better position. And I love that about your CSAC course is the, the attention to detail for the body positioning. Uh, you know, stay in the tunnel, stay low. If you want to go 45 degrees this way, you got to push 45 degrees the other way. Right. You know, I think strength training, and I'd really, really interested to hear your thoughts on this. The strength training can really help with the proprioception and understanding where the body is in space and also give them uh, the understanding that force creates motion, but stiffness controls that motion. And that's really what we're looking for out of all of this. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, so, and you had, you had hit the nail on the head when you had said, you know, position you know, is going to dictate our, our actions, our function. So if, if we properly strength train and we, and we, we create balance and as much symmetry as possible within a joint, because the joint, we obviously have tissue proprioceptors, and then we have joint, we have rate of speed, you know, we have tension, we have all these different you know, types of proprioceptors. So if, if our, if, if you have an athlete that is a, basically a, an internal rotator, right, from the hips to the knees down to the talus and everything, we just, we just pronate and they just drop right in. Okay, so they're going to have a different feel proprioceptively than somebody that is more neutral in their foot 
in their knee position and their hip position, and which means they probably have a nice, stable pelvis. They've probably got good oblique control, you know, of spine and pelvis and rib. And, and so the, the position that they have, the proprioception that they're going to get is going to be very clean and very conducive to good movement versus the other, you know, the bad example that I just gave. So I, I think as they, as they gain strength, and again, proper strength, now all of a sudden they have the ability to use that strength for force loading, for force producing for uh you know uh, you know even if it's in training we would do an isometric we're not always doing an isometric when we're performing uh but we're you know the ability to do that will help us and so that muscle being strong enough to hold its position gives the tendon a chance to have elastic quality versus a weak muscle which won't let that happen as much so we just benefit so much from having just good fundamental pure strength not to mention you know, more specific forms of strength, but just good fundamental strength allows us to do so many, uh, so many more quality things with our movement. So, so let's go down that road a little bit. Yeah. You mentioned proper strength training a couple of times there. What, what makes proper strength training in, in your, in your eyes? How do we, how do we put that together? What would an athlete need to consider to put together a proper strength training program? Yep. Okay. So number one, we want to make sure that we have, we're equaling what we, as much as possible, we have a good balance with a pushing pattern and a pulling pattern, both vertically and horizontally. Um, we would like to have, and, and you know, if you take like a cyclist, we want to make sure that they maybe spend a little bit more time on pulling, like most athletes need to, just because we're so much, so much easier for us to, to fall inward with our shoulders into the pushing pattern posture. So we might want to manipulate our set volume of a pull versus a push. And again, that's dependent. If you did that with me, you would probably hurt me because I have a really weird spine. So if you were to assess me versus somebody that is more kyphotic and rounded, you would have to adjust it. So from that standpoint, we want to make sure we have good balance. Uh, the other thing is when we, when we start looking at um, – uh, you know, for example, like a, a squat. If I'm gonna work with a power lifter, okay, that ability to manage weight is my goal. But I'm, if I'm working with a triathlete, okay, or a tennis athlete or a basketball, my goal isn't for them to manage as much weight as they can as their primary goal. It's to use that load to affect them movement-wise. So I wanna make sure that when my athletes squat, they do so with adequate dorsiflexion. Mm -hmm. A lot of times, which means there's going to be greater knee flexion. So the knee will drive forward a little bit, keeping the heel down. As we're typically, if I took a power lifter, you know, I'm going to try to keep those shins fairly vertical just because of the weight loads they have. They're going to be very posterior dominant, much more pitched forward. Well, with most of my athletes, because I have concern for deceleration, and every time a runner puts that foot on the ground, that's a form mm -hmm. of deceleration. Mm -hmm. I need to make sure they can do that in adequate range of motion from the ankle, the knee, the hip, as well as cervical spine and um, you know, just controlling the pelvis. So that's what I mean by the general sl kind of sliding into specific type patterns.
So I'm going to take a jab at here and say we, we agree that front squats and goblet squats or safety bar squats would be much more appropriate uh, or actually for cyclist uh, belt squats would be much more appropriate for them to get them into a more forward knee position because it's quote unquote more sport specific or actually more correctly more uh, sport force specific. Okay. So without a doubt, the ability to more vertically posture load, which a front squat does for us, or a goblet squat does for us, a belt loaded squat does for us. Certain forms of dumbbell squatting can do that for us, depending on how we're holding and where we're holding the dumbbells. Because when we do that, that allows us to be able to control eccentrically and or isometrically that ability to control force. Then we get to reverse that and concentrically produce force in a um, in more of a knee forward position in a properly loaded ankle. So yeah, I think it's really, I'm, I'm right with you on that. I think that's where we have to go. Uh, but we have to also have variability and do, you know, mm -hmm. do other forms of it as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm, I'm a big fan of like uh, split squats with the rear foot elevated for time under tension with light to no weight. So like a three, one, three, one for the, the base period, loading up those tissues, getting that joint position a little bit better, getting the posture and then going to a two, one, uh, essentially two second down, one second up and, and pause right back down. Um, it sounds like that's something you use as well. Kind of cycle through that throughout your training year. I do. Yep. I'm a big fan of that because that's a, again, I just think sometimes we I'm like, cause I'm a big fan of Olympic lifting or explosive training or things of that nature. But, but we, if we cannot control the eccentric quality, that's when things go awry on us. So yeah, I'm with you. You got to control that and go through phases of eccentric and isometric loading to build those qualities and that capacity. And you mentioned before, uh, and you also had a great blog post, I think in January, about how posterior focused we've become. And that's the pendulum I've learned in the, in the fitness uh, world that just goes one way and then it goes the other way. Um, and that eccentric phase, have we become too obsessed with that? Is that why we're posterior chain uh, focused? Or is it more because of our, our sedentary lifestyle where, like you said, the shoulders kind of fall in and we get into that uh, more... Uh, scrunched up position as one of my younger athletes likes likes to call it yeah yeah I, I, I think so you know I, I think certainly our uh, population and just the way we are today and everything that goes on that certainly gets us um, you know in in trouble with with just good you know good posture um, but I think the I, I think sometimes we do get a little bit too carried away with too long of programming and eccentric, you know, loading and things of that nature. I think it's so important that we do it, but we also have to understand if, especially if like you and I, we're after performance, right? We got to get people mm -hmm. to, you know, they got to perform well. So you can't forget that explosive part as well, that concentric speeds and rate of force development and things of that nature. And um, so I think you just, uh, the best programs, have a mix and have a really nice flow and progression and, and uh, meet the needs that not only that athlete needs, but the sport that that athlete is going to participate in so that they're able to, you know, be efficient in it. You mentioned the, uh, the need, the need for speed as the cliche goes. Um, mm -hmm. Something that's very prevalent. I have a, a half Ironman triathlete, very accomplished, who's, who's coming to me. Her previous coach had her doing almost all LSD everywhere. 
Like that, that was the go-to LSD, some, some speed work here and there. Um, but there was a lot of time in, in these gray zones. And I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Stephen um, McGregor and Matt Fitzgerald's book, uh, The Runner's Edge. You know, uh, I, I'm, I'm familiar with the book, but I have not read it. I know what you're talking about, but I have not read that book, no. So uh, I, I'm pretty sure that this is the reason why you're familiar with it, uh, or I would take a, a guess at it, is that uh, they have pace zone indexes. So the aerobic has a specific zone, tempo has a specific zone, and then there's a big jump between tempo and, and threshold, essentially. Um, and there's a, a big, like, 35 to 45 second gap there um, because – when you're running at that speed, you're essentially not, one, you're not efficient. There was a study done, I think by McGregor actually at Eastern uh, Michigan University that showed that the best milers and, and 5K runners were highly inefficient at, at any speed other than the race speed. So their gait changed to that point. Uh, and number two was it's, you're just running at that point where you're not really getting a metabolic uh, effect as well. So what are your thoughts on kind of uh, meeting that speed? Is it good to, you know, we need those longer runs. When do you call uh, that run when you're, you're trying to get that, that tissue adaptation and the good balance in biomechanics to where you're actually able to push yourself down the road and not just waste your time and feel like you're doing something? Yeah, and that's, and that's, the, that's the big thing. It's funny. My college exercise science professor was Jack Daniels. You're familiar with Jack Daniels? <laughs> of course, yeah. <laughs> yeah he, he's the, you know, he was the GOAT for many years there in, in that area. And he, so, you know, we had a, you know, pretty good, you know, pretty good, uh, you know, resource in front of us there. But um, the you know, the, the ability to have capacity to be able to push yourself to get, like you had said, to, to get the tissues, to be able to manage greater speeds, greater intensities is really important. So if I, if I can get my athletes to build a capacity to not only be able to run a, a particular distance, but to be able to manage a workout okay so capacity isn't always about just going and running that race ultimately that's what we want but we have to have a capacity so that we can train harder so that we can manage the the number of hours or how much time we're going to train them so if we can build that up and then if we can if we can backfill that with speed because the speed when they learn to change gears everything from pelvic position um you know, my T-spine mm -hmm. uh, ability to control rotation because arm action is going to get greater. Mm -hmm. My foot action, where I land on my foot is going to change from sprinting to, mm -hmm. to sub-sprinting to jogging, you know, is going to change. So if we don't expose our athletes to that, when they need it, number one, they might not have it. And number two, they may get injured unless mm -hmm. we've exposed it to them enough time. So the biomechanical part of it is really critical, but also the physical part of it, of being able to shift from having a nice, smooth, consistent gait that we're almost flowing in to being able to push, to push and project and a little bit more, you know, backside dominant pushing to be able to get me going, you know, forward faster if I have to, or depending on where I am, maybe up a hill as a slight incline or something. So so yeah, I definitely think those are very, very important things that, that we have to have and instill in our runners. 
And you mentioned, uh, you know, within the training session, going through those, those changes of speed and, and how they're actually uh, dealing with those forces and they're being required to produce them. Let's get a little bit into the program design. You know, what would, uh, what would the system look like uh, that you might use with someone? And obviously, the distances for the triathlon matter a lot. Like, I'd like to say that each distance of triathlon is a completely different sport because the demands are so different. So let's say an Olympic distance uh, triathlete first, and then uh, we'll go Ironman. So kind of that middle distance and long distance. What would uh, a session look like? Let's say this time of year, February, the peak is in October. So we're just towards the, uh, the beginning of build one, let's say. Right. Well, this is where I, I don't know, I might differ from some people uh, in this regard. Um, I, I think just because of my, you know, my, uh, you know, my uh, capacity to build speed and that's my kind of my passion. And I understand that. So because it's this far off, this is where I'm going to work on biomechanical efficiencies, any changes that I might have to make. So we're going to literally work on from some running technique, sprint mechanical technique things so that I can improve. Again, we don't just get speed quality, we get tissue quality, we get joint loading mechanics, we get all those values when we train for speed. So I'm going to try to really buffer that ability to have greater turnover, greater speed. Now I want them to be able to manage some good uh, plyometric type training or, or jump training. Um, we're going to hit things of that nature now, and then we'll have a less volume of pure distance at this time of the year. And then as we start you know, moving closer, then I'll, I'll give more of the distance while still hanging on to that speed that we gain. Because to me, it is harder to gain speed if you don't have it than it is to gain uh, mm -hmm. endurance capacity. Mm -hmm. I just have to get you out there. You know, if I can get you six to eight weeks of good quality training, I can build a really nice aerobic quality base. But in order to make you faster, there's many variables that I have to change. So I'm going to make sure in a session, we're going to have quality warmups that are going to give me multi-directional movement. So that's what I'm going to add. We might do some lateral movement, just, you know, basic stuff, nothing crazy. I'm not going to train them like a basketball player, but we might do some karaoke mm -hmm. so we can get some multi, you know, joint loading in the feet and the hips. Uh, we're going to do possibly some resisted lateral stuff just to help look very light. Uh, we're going to do some lateral bounding, some ice skater type movements, things of that nature, some lateral skipping. And then what we're going to do is we're going to go into different forms of power and speed or this plyometric concept that we talked about. And then it goes into easier type movements, like a, maybe some stride outs or some buildups like that. And, and if, if on that particular day, we're going to have some distance, then we would throw uh, distance in there. And how much I do of each of those is predicated on, on uh, well, obviously the athlete, but if that all else being equal is on um, the day of the week you know, you know, t towards the end of the week, I'm going to hit more of a distance than I would towards the beginning of the week. So it sounds like, uh, keep the athlete moving a little bit more quickly towards the beginning of the week when they tend to be more fresh mentally and physically, and then towards the end, kind of taper the intensity down, uh, and kind of settle a little bit. Yeah. Even for mental, uh, characteristics, because, 
you got to pay attention, especially if you take somebody, you're taking a fish out of water. A lot of times, if you take a, you know, a triathlete and say, okay, now all of a sudden we're going to make you do some different things in a frontal plane and transverse plane. They're not used to, well, that takes mental focus and concentration towards the end of the week. You might not have that as well, just like all of us do, whether it's business or work or not. So yeah, you kind of give them things that they can focus on, but have less stress in terms of having to be, you know, aware of so many potential things straight ahead running is that's their wheelhouse. So we can get them feeling comfortable by the end. And uh, do you have a, a decent amount of uh, mileage that you look I, again, the answer is it depends for the athlete, their training age, all, all these different factors, but let's say everything equal. Um, is there a specific mileage you would look at for, for a, a, like an Ironman? Uh, I have my thoughts, but I'd, I'd really like to hear yours because I think, when you're training speed and, and this seems to be a recurring theme here is the shorter distances is where you gain it. And then you just learn that speed endurance, maintaining it over that distance. Um, so do you kind of look at the distances as we have to run X miles before you're going to do a marathon after the swim and bike? Uh, or is it more of the athlete's tissue quality and posture breakdown and mental makeup is going to determine that long distance? Yeah. Uh, um, you know, definitely with that, I, that, you know, multiple things here. Um, Sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 you're good. I, I just, uh, cause I, as you're saying it, I'm thinking it and, and, and then, um, you know, I just got to remember what you said because I'm thinking as you're saying, <laughs> cause I'm thinking of certain athletes and things I've done in the past and all, but you know, like when I was with um, uh, in class and, and followed a lot of, you know, the professor I talked about earlier, coach Daniels is, um, he was really big on, you know, getting around that hundred mile per week zone. Okay. That was something that was big to him. And, and he, and he talked about, you know, he, you know, which, you know, he would go above all our heads always, but he talked about, you know, blood chemistry and, you know, buffering and things of that nature. And then building up just, just pure capacity to be able to manage, uh, you know, that much. But the, the, the thing is, um, with so many athletes, if, if one of their restrictions is they're just not very strong, they're not very stiff and stable, running that much mileage, it's really hard to get quality strength gains because those two work on opposite ends of the spectrum. So there's where we have to be really creative because we could be in the same uh, time of the year with four different athletes and each of those athletes have different strength levels, different needs. So we have to be able to really make sure we're reaching the needs. I might have a very powerful athlete versus a very weak athlete, but the weak athlete has tremendous capacity. So we got to be able to make our adjustments there. So, so anyway, I, I was always, you know, if I consulted with runners of that, you know, whether it be a triathlete or, a, you know, if, if we're talking Ironman, which I have not done, um, you know, much with that level, but it would be making sure that they're getting in that range between 80 to 100 miles because that's what they're going to have to do. You know, that's, that's what they're going to have to manage. They're going to have to be able to handle their feet, their joints, everything. They're able to manage that in the mental capacity to be able to stay focused during that distance. Um, but then when we come down to adding qualities, that's when the speed and the strength has to be added to them. So they're just a, you know, just a better over athlete, but I'm interested though, in hearing your thoughts, what, what are the distances that you're, you're prescribing with uh, most of your 
your uh, Ironman? I'm going short. Um, I, I've really seen, and in, in, in my experience, and, and it's great that you're thinking about previous athletes. I think that's what we all do as coaches is we always think back, you know, because there's so many variables that, that you can't account for. Uh, yeah, that's right. But uh, I, I've gone, I, I've never been a big fan of big, big miles. I, my first ever Ironman uh, triathlete wanted, he had done or had attempted to do a number of Ironman and it was just broken. He's the only person I've ever had on the overhead squat you know, the FMS style test that scored zero, the only one <laughs> like that's and working with basketball, young basketball players and a uh, number of other athletes, obviously we have our fair share of ones, but um, he loved running uh, 28 miles. That was his big thing. He wanted to do two or three 28 miles before his Ironman. Um, so I've kind of taken, you know, when Brad Hudson's book came out, uh, I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head, but um, I saw somebody else running lower volume, but doing more, work on the speed endurance and then essentially you build the aerobic engine up large enough uh i'm tend tend to be around you know at max 50 55 miles uh, mm -hmm. a week but very high quality so i'm having people do a little bit of galloway method so to speak where they're doing their efforts and then they're walking and using hrv a little bit let that heart rate yeah. come back down teaching breathing um, maintaining your posture, focus on, you know, the small things, the arm carriage, um, listen to your feet, take your headphones out and listen because you can hear when you're starting to die off and that's, what's going to happen in the race. Um, exactly. And you know, I, I think and really in my, uh, I'll give you an example. This is obviously a much, much different distance, but I had an 800 runner too, uh, a male and a female, and they both, um, you know, won the States. For us, and one and the and the boy came back and won. He was the trail in our four by uh, uh, four by eight. And his training with me, we his distance coach, because I, I I had a distance coach, I had people like that. But he wanted to keep pushing mileage, and I and I wouldn't let him. I wanted him to be more fundamentally sound as a runner and faster and more explosive. That's how he run. Mm -hmm. I mean, he he. Uh, that, I mean, that's how he won uh, the race and his running form increased efficiency wise because he became so much better at, at um, economy, just at running economy and stuff. So yeah, I, I definitely, definitely am more in that favor. And I, I, my background was with the ultra distances was from what I learned from, you know, like I said, coach Daniels and people of that nature who we're more in the distance, but in my natural reaction, I've always been more of a shorter distance, especially my younger athletes, more like what you're talking about in those ranges. So yeah, I think, you know, I would definitely defer to your expertise in that area. That's without a doubt. Yeah, and I'm a big fan of the progressive uh, runs, like especially doing like a, a 14 mile, my longest right now is 16, but that's because she needs that for her mental you know, to know she can do it. Like for her, once you get past mile 15, if she can learn how to push, but I, I like the progressive runs for exactly what you said about your 800 runner. Cause it teaches them uh, that explosiveness. Like as you're getting tired, we're getting the tissue strain, we're getting a higher metabolic impact and the hormonal response is going to be greater in the recovery because you're ramping up as you go through. Um, mm -hmm. and that, that's kind of where I, I've replaced the distances. Uh, you know, I think the longest one in the last three years has been, uh, 18 miles and that was because their, uh, GPS stopped working for about two and a half. Um, <laughs> and, and he felt it. He's like, I feel so heavy. And I just kept scratching my head. I'm like, you were running so slow. And then we, we looked at the map on Google maps. I'm like, holy crap, we're missing two and a half miles. Uh, <laughs> so, it, you know, it's one of those things that, um, 
the mileage approach is okay. And we've seen shoes, you know, the big study came out that shoes don't prevent injuries. And, and this is kind of the question for you is, um, you know, what about the specific baselines for strength? Because a lot of runners, triathletes are like, oh, I'm going to go hoka or barefoot or this, and that's going to correct my issues when really it comes down to basic strength. Are, are there specific um, baselines you're looking for with your athletes ba- to get them strong enough? Or, and obviously, again, it depends, but is there a specific uh, minimum that you're looking for? One of the things that I'm big on, and this is, you know, most people don't look at it this way, but I will, if, if we're talking single leg, I, I'm, I'm big on single leg um, with many of my athletes, but especially my runners, I would like them to be able to do a box squat, which means, not, not the typical powerlifting box squat, a, a box squat where they're standing up on the box and they lower down so the free leg drops below the side of the box and they're getting to you know at least parallel hopefully below i would like for them to be able to do that uh, at least five times with 45 to 60 pounds okay so that may not seem like a ton of weight for some for some athletes for others it may seem like you know an extreme a lot of weight because some of them can't even do a body weight well, that's the goal we've always looked for. When I had some runners in the past, this was even probably 15, 18 years ago now, that was the, when I started to get them to be able to do that consistency, I noticed a lot of their, um, a lot of their issues in their, you know, uh, knee pain, you know, tibialis pain, this st- stuff like that started to go away. They started to get stronger. They had good resiliency. So that would be something I looked at. And then the other way, would, which would be the hinge pattern, and I would like to get them to a, and again, with, you know, boys, girls, size, strength level. But if I can get them somewhere between, you know, 65 to 75 pound um, uh, dumbbell, single leg RDL. Mm -hmm. Now I know they're developing some really good stability in their body to maintain that posture and be able to hip hinge and be able to get up. So I'm getting both my knee flexion control, my hip um, flexion and extension control. And those are just numbers that are very raw for me. It isn't anything that's been proven or anything, but those were, that was pretty much what I looked for. And I found that my athletes stayed healthy when they were reaching certain numbers. And it was so off, you know, all over the gamut, just based on who the athlete was and how strong they naturally were. So, uh, but that, that was kind of what I looked at. What, what, how did you load the uh, standing on box? Was that a, a goblet style squat? Yeah. Yeah. So they would, uh, what we did before, you know, the kettlebell and stuff came around, but it was uh, just a plate. Mm-hmm. So they would hold a 45 pound plate and then I would use a vest mm-hmm. You know, I could throw a vest on them. Um, uh, even, you know, I've done it with wrist weights or ankle weights, which ankle weights are typically heavy. You can get a 10-pound ankle weight, you know, so you put two of those on. Now there's your extra 20 pounds. So we just we just found ways to strap them on. But the vest was always good. The, the reason I like the plate in front is because it, it helped them counterbalance a little bit. You know, if they, if, um, you know, if they didn't have tremendous balance, and they got too much backside loaded, they, they couldn't, you know, sometimes they couldn't hold their position. So the plate helped them just like a front squat would, you know, or a goblet would. 
Yeah, I'm a big fan of that, especially because it exposes the uh, upper thorax uh, weaknesses. Yeah. So if they can't maintain that, we're like, hey, we're going back to uh, wall scap slides and uh, dead bugs and some maybe some good mornings to help you get better uh, strength endurance through the spine. Uh, For sure. Back. Definitely. Yep. And that's well, a big area we don't think about with runners. Uh-huh. <laughs> cervical and thoracic, you know, um, uh, stability, just there's so much wasted energy and, and um you know, in pain. I mean, gosh, you know, you can, you know, you know, I've worked with runners before that have had, you know, issues with their neck where they required surgery because they, they're just so, um, their, their head carriage is so much out in front of them. You know, it really caused a lot of problems, headaches and things of that nature. And that, that actually uh, kind of is a good segue to where I wanted to, to wrap up here for today is uh, for cycling. I mean, it's such a, a, a a poor posture to be in to have to get off and run at all, let alone, you know, uh, a 10 K or a half a marathon or marathon. Um, so the posture is so important. And, and I spend a lot of time focusing on the upper back and you kind of already went there. What are some things that you look for as far as, um, arm carriage? Are you looking at scapular thoracic rhythm? Are you looking at strictly mid lower traps and rhomboid? Like what are you looking for uh, as a, as a starting point or to get the athletes to you're like, okay, now we're in the ballpark where we can actually start worrying uh, about paces or, or cleaning up the arm swing a bit more. Yeah. Well, well, I think what's really important is that they have the ability of having really good scapular movement from uh, various arm positions. So they could be in a horizontal, like a bench press, push up, press, you know, and any, any position like that. And I want to make sure that they have really good scapular rhythm around the ribs. Um, I want to make sure that they can maintain those positions uh, very, very functionally, very easily in a, you know, maybe a static, you know, uh, arm extended plank type position. But here's the thing that I think is really important. And this is what I look for is I want them to be able to go unilateral and I want them to be able to have uh, extension and rotation or flexion and rotation through the thoracic and, you know, having the arm move through its range of motion from an abduction position to an adducted and internal and externally rotated position. So it could be like a waiter's carry all the way to a PNF pattern across the body. Those are the things that I'm looking for. If I can see good symmetry, good range of motion and pain free with various uh, uh, tests of the shoulder and stuff, then I'm comfortable. Now, if they run and they have those shoulders just drop out on them and they, they, they come in and their arm carriages off, then obviously I got to get back to work and I got to look at some things um, that need to be straightened out because sometimes it's, it's not just as easy as saying, well, their, their shoulders are slumped in. Well, maybe their shoulders are slumped in because maybe something going on in the core or the diaphragm. Maybe we're not breathing and we're not filling uh, uh, areas within the body. You know, we're not getting enough volume of air out through different parts of the ribs. And uh, uh, so, you know, so yeah, I just think there's a lot to it. I think there's a lot to what we're looking at. And it's, uh, but I'm real big on single arm single-sided loader because it creates that transverse control yeah the, the rotary stability yes yes what about uh cyclists as far as getting them uh you know 
someone who comes in as a, a cyclist primarily as their sport and they want to try triathlon, uh, what would be a couple, let's say two or three basic drills that they can do? Um, and we all know that triathletes tend to be, you know, they very much want to please and push. What would be some relatively safe exercises to start to teach them to be able to dissipate the ground forces and getting them into better positions to be able to begin to build up running uh, mileage or, or time rather uh, at a high quality and, and decrease their risk of injury? Yeah, well, first of all, why I, I'm always, you know, and this is just, you know, more of my age and when I grew up was we were always taught and made to jump rope, okay, to skip rope. So when they start that, that does a couple things for us. It's building foot quality, okay, and ankle stiffness and right through lower leg, but it's also starting to take a good look at how does our thorax and our cervical spine manage quick loading, okay? Because if they have like a, you know, like they keep jutting their head forward every time they land, well, that's not a great thing. They gotta be able to manage that weight. So something simple like that then transferring them into a gate pattern of simple A drills, okay, whether it's an A skip, an A, you know, A marching is good, but you're not going to get the same loading because it's closed chain, mm-hmm. or you're never going to go from open to closed, which would be in a typical running gate. Um, so things of that nature, I think, are really good because, and videotaping it so they can see how they manage it, and you can as well. And, um, and then gradually starting to add in more of a just a, a baseline plyometric elastic type stretch reflex type activities that will build those qualities and then get them into, I, I think if you can get them into sprinting, because what that does is that teaches them to open up and it's going to give them some really good qualities of their thorax because their the greater arm action is going to create that rotary stability and elastic energy that we want. So that would be kind of like a progression that I would use, you know, and I think I'm always big on starting athletes with, they don't even have to have a jump rope. They just have to do like, you know, jumps of that format. It could be like little low level pogo jumps, you know, things of that nature. You know, so that, I don't think that's age at all. I, you know, it kind of reminds me of the, the, the Russian joke, you know, the Americans spent a million dollars back in the 1950s to develop this pen that would write in space and the Russians just use a pencil. <laughs> yeah. uh, <laughs> It's, it's the basics, you know, it's, it's human movement. And I, I just listened to the, uh, the gains, con, um, gains podcast with, uh, Vern Gambetta the other day, and they talked about plyometrics and, you know, people are laughing, you know, I had somebody laugh at me like, you want me to jump rope? I don't need to jump rope. Obviously they don't have the coordination for it. Like it's basic human movement. You watch kids play, they're jumping, like for them, jumping rope is fun. They enjoy it. Uh, they're, they're playing, they're learning. And as an adult, it really exposes your weaknesses. Like it's, it's hard if you don't do it right, you know, getting 10 jumps in a row and your posture is crap. You're, you're SOL. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yep. So, without a doubt. It's a big thing. I've, I've, when I used to coach basketball, my teams did it and I had a progression for them. They had three different progressions. They had to work their way through. And these were girls that some of them couldn't even jump rope. And then by the time we got to the end, most of them got to at least level two, of our progression and uh which was fantastic but yeah i just think it's i think it's a great thing it sounds like you have a, a fantastic mix through each of your practices of uh at some type of dynamic warm-up a little bit of uh, soft tissue work as well at the beginning a dynamic warm-up um do you do you kind of follow that uh you know 20 minute ish warm-up for an hour session uh get the body moving well get the synapses kind of firing get the postures right and then go in or, or do you have a, a different philosophy of, of how to build the, the sessions properly for 
the listeners that want to understand what you're doing and, and how to change their sessions to, to do a bit better? Yeah, well, so I'll give you an, an, a, the, the ideal session for me, and this is what it would look like, is, well, once we get them in, they're going to do their tissue quality work. So whether you use a stick, a ball, a roll, or whatever, all we're trying to do is get blood flow and, and some extensibility within the tissue. You know, we're not going to make tremendous changes in knots right now. That's really hard to do, but we can make the tissue feel better. Then we get blood flow, get some heat in there. So once we've done that, then they get up and, and then we go into multi-planar movement. So whether it's a, a lunge series or a matrix or something of that nature, they're going to do that. And then I go into which some people are going to call it's outside of the warm-up, but for me, it's still in the warm-up. I start adding things like medicine ball throws, not, not high, certainly high intensity level, just light like maybe a four to six pound ball, but we start doing different releases because now what I get is I get internal, external rotation from shoulder and joints and I can get some thorax movement and I can get, you know, from a dorsiflex to a plantar flex release pattern. So we start doing things of that nature. Then that leads me into whatever form of power. I usually, if I'm going to have some power, that's when I'll do it right after that warm up slash you know, medicine ball type routine or, and then we hit, um, you know, upper body power and lower body power, which upper body is usually some kind of medicine ball throw or some kind of tubing explosive movement. And uh, lower body is obviously, you know, some kind of jump. I might jump up onto a box to diminish landing and, you know, emphasize the explosiveness. Then, um, then we'll go into whatever speed we're going to do. And then if we're hitting strength, we'll hit our strength. And uh, if I have athletes that need metabolic work or more, not metabolic, but more energy system training, pure energy system, I'll do that. So um, that's really what it looks like in a nutshell. And then if I have a private client, if I'm working with some individual, then, then it would change based on their particular goals. Nice. And, and I love how uh, you changed metabolic for energy. I think that's energy system. That's very important. Uh, a lot of people get those two mixed up and that's uh, a, a bit of a difference there. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's funny. Cause even I find myself saying metabolic just because that's what everybody else says. So at yep. least I know what you're talking about, but then, but then I'll catch myself. I'm like, well, yeah, we're not re really, we're talking about energy system and we're not always talking about, you know, metabolism and, and muscle and energy that way. So. Yeah. yeah, it's just like plyometrics. I, I've caught myself when I was uh, teaching CrossFit a couple of times. I'm like, today we're doing plyometrics. No, we're not doing plyometrics. We are doing jumping today. <laughs> yeah, that's a big one too. And it's funny. It's just our society. We Sometimes I say things just because it's quicker and it's easier. And I'm like, all right, this is what I'm doing. But in reality, that's not the real thing. <laughs> yeah. In your head, you're like, yeah, you wouldn't understand. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, Lee, thank you for joining us today. Um, I'd like to ask if you had two or three things either that, that you'd like to share with the listeners that you think are really important take-homes for them, or maybe two or three things that are really uh, cutting it for you right now and you're helping you see results with your athletes. What would those two or three things be? Yeah, well, thank you. First of all, thank you for asking. I was so excited when you did ask me because this is different for me, you know, and it's because I'm so typical of, you know, a, doing this with, you know, team sport or court sport athletes. So this was a lot of fun for me. Um, but yeah, I, I, I really think, and you and I both touched on this quite a bit. 
I just don't think we understand yet in our endurance world how important strength is. It's getting there, you know, because of, you know, people like yourself and there's many other people out there that are now getting the importance of the strength. I think when we make our athletes stronger, that is our foundation of movement, our position, especially if we're doing it correctly, our now, you know, our joint position, and that dictates how our biomechanics and how everything else is going to work. So I think that's one of the things. Don't cut yourself short on the strength because you're going to help in so many areas, even injury prevention. So I think that's a really big thing um, that, that, you know, coaches need to emphasize and athletes themselves. Um, the other thing is if we talk about um, some of the stuff that I've been, you know, doing more of, this is nothing really sexy, but it's something that over the last couple of years, I've put a ton of time and emphasis on it because we've already talked about the feet and the ankles. I do a tremendous amount of um, backpedal work from walking to squatting and walking backwards to running backwards to um, you know, skipping backwards. And the reason I do that, and this is what I'm finding, is... Um, it creates a natural uh, subconscious. In other words, the athletes don't have to force it. They don't have to think about it. They, it's an innate to the movement is we drive great dorsiflexion through the great toe, through the ankle, obviously, the talus and everything. And we, we challenge uh, quadriceps to work with the lower part of my ankle and my, you know, the backside of my ankle. And then I do backpedaling where they're extended and much taller, which gets my front of my hip, my hip flexor in that region to communicate really well with my gastroc. And because I'm straighter now, I'm not bent anymore. So I've been doing a lot with that. And that's, I'm finding whether I'm working with, you know, track athletes, distance runners, you know, tennis athletes, badminton or whatever, I'm getting them to feel really good in their range of motion and their control. So it's just funny how it just clicked at me one time and I started to just really emphasize the backpedal action as injury prevention and, you know, helping performance overall. So, yeah, so I think that's a little bit different. I don't think a lot of people do that, but I've always been enamored with that. So I think it's helped a lot. So I think we'll have to have you back at least uh, another time because the first thing that comes to mind when you're talking about that is the sissy squat and how that's kind of making a comeback. Yeah, uh, you're right. Like I yeah. remember one of the older guys in the gym, he must have been 72, 73 when I first started sneaking into the weight room at 12 was doing them. And, you know, yep. one of the other guys was like, oh, you're going to hurt your knees when you do that. And he had me try it. And it's, it's a great exercise. It's tough. Like it's really yeah. tough. It's really tough. Yeah, you get that old little piece of iron and you'd lock your foot around it and, and yeah. go back. The old ones used to, they used to crush you. They were oh, tough. Yeah, yeah I, I, I know what you're saying. <laughs> well, Lee, uh, where can our listeners uh, find you and, and tap in? I know you have the Speed Insiders, uh, which is a six-month su super thorough course. Uh, where else can uh, folks find you? Well, thank you. Yeah, if, if the, the easiest way, if they just go to myname.com, leetaft.com, that's where they're going to find most of the things. And then anything like at Lee Taft for my social media, they'll be able to uh, connect with me. Uh, I try, like actually today was episode number 84. Every day I try to get a new video out um, just on different things, you know, a lot, you know, 
certainly a lot of speed, but I've been doing some strength and different things as well. So yeah, that's probably the best way. But if they go to leetaft.com, they'll, they'll be sure to be able to find me and then find the other things that we do. So, but thank you for allowing me to, to mention that. I appreciate it. Of course. Like I said, at the beginning of the pocket, we honestly wouldn't be here without you and, uh, and two other guys. <laughs> I'd still be like, Oh, one day I should start podcasting. So, uh, thank you very much. Lee. Oh, well, I appreciate it, Coach. Thanks so much. And, uh, and, you know, best of luck to the listeners as well. That's it for this episode of the Strong Savvy Cyclist and Triathlete Podcast with world-leading strength coach for cyclists and triathletes, Menachem Brody. Don't miss an episode. Hit that subscribe button and give us a review. For more exclusive content, visit humanvortextraining.com or get the latest expert videos from Coach Brody on the HVT YouTube channel at HV Training. Until next time, remember to train smarter, not harder, because it is all about you.